Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We will be looking at John 4, verses 27 through 42 this morning. And uh, we're picking back up where we left off in John. And I, I guess it's been um, four weeks now since we were in John. But we're picking back up in the Gospel of John. Uh, before I read John 4, let's pray together. Father, we pray that uh, you would come and be with us now, that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, that you would uh, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to grasp and hearts to receive all that you have for us in your Word. We, we know that... Uh, Faith comes through hearing and hearing through your word, and, uh, and yet it takes the work of your spirit to make that happen. And so we pray for the work of your spirit to strengthen our faith and grow us in faith and maybe give us faith for the first time, Father. Uh, we pray that you would be at work through your word this morning to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so, the sower, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Think for a minute, what would it take to solve all the world's problems? I know that's a big list, but just, just consider. What would it take to solve all of your problems? What would it take to put the world right? What would it take to fix what is broken? You know, I rejoice uh, in glimpses of glory wherever they are seen, right, among Christians uh, among non-Christians, evidence of God's handiwork, reflections of His image. 
but I also long and I mourn and I ache that the world would be put right. Sometimes I go too far. Maybe you're like this. Uh, you begin to feel like the, the burden of the world is on your shoulders as if I have to make things right. Sometimes I give up, hopeless that anything will ever get better. Well, what we see in our text this morning is good news for mournful and weary souls. Jesus is on a mission as the Savior of the world, and we now get to be a part of His mission. And we're going to ask the question, what is, what is your role in God's purposes? Now, there are some assumptions in that question. Uh, I assume that we are a part of God's purposes, that we, that we do have a role in God's work. Uh, we're not simply, that we are this, but we're not simply beneficiaries, and we're not simply bystanders. We're not just called to sit back and do nothing. We, we might think, well, Jesus is the Savior, therefore there's nothing left for me to do. And yet Jesus calls us in other places in Scripture to take up our cross and follow Him. On the other hand, I assume that there is a a common work for us to do. There's variety, to be sure. Um, There are pastors and elders and deacons and missionaries, uh, but there are also plumbers and nurses and teachers and housewives and engineers and janitors and bankers and artists. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, we should use it to serve one one another according to God's varied grace. We don't all have the same gifts or calling. But there is also commonality. There's a common core to our role in God's purposes, which is what we're going to discuss this morning. And so we're going to look at four pretty basic and yet important things. Uh, You can see them in your outline. Uh, First is keep your eyes on the unseen. Second, know the core and scope of God's purposes Three, understand the times. And four, invite others into the same. Keep your eyes on the unseen. Know the core and scope of God's purposes. Understand the times and invite others into the same. Jesus is on a mission as the Savior of the world, and and he now calls us to be a part of that work. And so the question is, what is your role in God's purposes? Number one, keep your eyes on the unseen. Uh, we come really to the end of a fascinating story, right? Jesus has been engaging with the Samaritan woman. They've been talking theology, as it were, right? And, and at this point in the story, the disciples return. Now, we're going to get back to the woman's story in a minute. She, she exits, though, she exits the stage for a moment. And before we return to her, we have this interlude with the disciples. And the first thing that happens is the disciples marvel that Jesus is talking to a woman, now, this shows what we've been saying all along, which is that Jesus was, was beholden to no cultural convention, right? He, he did what was right regardless of accepted norms. He treated women as spiritual equals. He taught them. He engaged with them about spiritual things. And the disciples, uh, probably out of respect for Jesus as their rabbi, say nothing, uh, though they are wondering what's going on. Uh, most likely, they don't really even know what to say. What they do is change the subject. Uh, In verse 31, they encourage Jesus to eat. He has to be hungry, after all. I mean, they've been traveling for the better part of a day in the hot sun. 
Uh, We know that he's thirsty because the text tells us earlier in John 4 that Jesus was weary from his journey, and then Jesus asks the woman for a drink. And so the disciples were told uh, they they don't just offer, but they urge Jesus to eat. And, And Jesus responds in what is kind of a typically elusive and mysterious Jesus kind of way in verse 32. He says, uh, the disciples encourage him to eat. He says, um, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now note the disciples' response in the next verse. The disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat, right? Who who gave him food that we don't know about? What is he talking about? Uh, And clearly they, they don't get it. Uh, it's interesting how often Jesus will say something, and even those closest to him have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, so Jesus clarifies in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, I want you to consider for a second what's going on here, what's happening, because it's a pattern that we've seen again and again in the Gospel of John, and we'll see it again after this, that there's a discussion between Jesus and some people, this time the disciples, Jesus talks to them on one level, and they completely misunderstand. Uh, To Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can a man go back into his mother's womb? I, I don't get it. To the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, if you only asked, I would give you living water. And she replies, give me this water so I won't have to keep trekking out all the way to this well in the hot sun. To the disciples, Jesus said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they reply, has someone given him something to eat? And notice in each case, what what are Jesus' hearers focused on? They're focused on this life. They're focused on the present age. They are focused on physical realities. They can't see any further than what is right in front of their their eyes. The, The perpetual diagnosis... Uh, for, for humanity that we find in Scripture is that we are nearsighted, right? We're, we're colorblind to spiritual things. Uh, my, my mother-in-law really uh, enjoys rocks, and that may sound strange, but it's actually really cool because she collects fluorescent rocks that, that actually require an ultraviolet light to see. And and to the human eye, under normal light, they just look like plain, ordinary rocks. You wouldn't think they were anything special. But once you put them under a special light, suddenly they are fluorescent orange and green and blue and purple. They're really beautiful and amazing. And the spiritual world is like that. It's right in front of our eyes, but we just can't see it. We are so focused on the present age, the material world, that we can't imagine the age to come, the other world, which is already broken in through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus keeps talking to people about spiritual realities, and they keep missing it. And notice Jesus is not only thinking of of, uh, greater realities, he he prioritizes them. It's not just that there are these other realities out there, uh, and they're kind of 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 equal importance. No, Jesus prioritizes them. They offer him food, and he says, I have food. Uh, They say, what food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As one commentator put it, mission takes priority over comfort, right? Sure, Jesus is hungry, but he's got more important things to worry about right now than food. The unseen things have greater weight than the seen. If we are to participate in Jesus' work, we need to see, uh, we need to look at life through the eyes of faith. 
Uh, Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That is, the, the realities that most govern our lives are not those that we can see with our eyes, but those God has revealed in His Word, realities we believe because we trust our Father. And yet, faith is a kind of sight. Uh, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. We look with the eyes of faith, believing and so seeing with our mind's eye. Faith in, engages the imagination to see with our mind's eye spiritual realities. And then we are called to prioritize those realities. Right, what, what do you prioritize in life? Uh, is, it, is it food for your body or food for your soul? Is it steak and eggs or the will and work of your Father in heaven? You won't participate in God's work until you prioritize it. Uh, what's getting in the way? Uh, when you hear you must prioritize the will and work of your Father, how, how does your heart respond to that? About what does it say oh, oh, but, but I really need to do this, or I really need to do that, or, or, or this thing in my life, I need to focus here now, and maybe I'll get to that later on. Jesus is on a mission as the Savior of the world, and we get to be a part of, of his work in the world. What is your role in his purposes? The first is to keep your eyes on the unseen, to prioritize even the unseen. And how do you do that? Well, we, we do it by reading God's Word. We do it by spending time with His people, as we're doing right now. We do it by praying for His Spirit to be at work. <clears throat> we do it by walking by faith. We don't do it perfectly, but we trust God to bless our efforts to, to stumble along as we look to Him. And so keep your eyes on the unseen. Second, know the core and scope of God's purposes. What exactly was the will and work that God called Jesus to do? Jesus continues his kind of enigmatic speech, talking about the harvest and reaping and wages when the Samaritans come in from town. Uh, they've heard the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did, and they, they wanted to come and see for themselves. And the story ends like this. It's really the climax of the story. And it gives us both the core and the scope of what God was doing. In verse 42, uh, they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now notice how, how this is the climax of the story. Uh, Jesus encounters this woman at the well uh, at the very beginning of John 4. And initially, she sees him as, as you, a Jew, in verse 9. She playfully mocks him even, asking if he is greater than our father Jacob, in verse 12. Eventually, she realizes that he is a prophet, in verse 19. And next, he reveals himself to her as the Messiah, in verse 26, when he says, I who speak to you am he. Notice there's this increasing understanding and unfolding of who Jesus is. And when she gets back to town, she asks the question, can this be the Christ, in verse 29? But now the Samaritans as a whole from this town have come out, and they say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
This is where the, the whole episode has been driving. Jesus is the Savior of the world, not, not of Jews only, but of the world. And in this short sentence, we see both the core and the scope of God's purposes. So the core is that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who will put all things right. Uh, the, the work of saving is Jesus' work. It's, it's not my work. It's not your work. Uh, when doing elder training, not this past weekend, but a month or so ago, we looked at a number of calls to ministry in Scripture. And in many of the calls to ministry in Scripture, the one who's being called tries to back out. He says something like, I don't have what it takes. I'm nobody special. Ask somebody else. And God's consistent response to those people in Scripture is, I will be with you. And we thought for a minute about our own inadequacy to be church leaders. And think about it. How many souls can I regenerate? None. Uh, How many hearts can I soften? None. How many people can I convince that Jesus is Lord? How how many people can I turn from darkness to light? How many people can I bring to repentance? The answer is none every time. Jesus is the Savior. Not me, not you, not the church, not your elders, not your friends, not your spouse, not your children. And, And you know what happens when we think that we are the Savior, What happens when we think that we are the Savior is is typically uh, pride followed by burnout. You know what happens when we look to other people as the Savior? Disappointment followed by bitterness because they will fail. And the core of God's purpose is that Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who does the saving work. The scope of God's purposes is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is the the breadth of his purposes, right? We tend to uh, shrink God's purposes to the size of our life. We domesticate or nationalize or diminish God's purpose in some way. We focus on God making my life better. Or or while uh, most of us wouldn't say this, we limit God's saving purposes to to me and people like me. Uh, This used to be more explicit, right? The the Jews and the Samaritans did not have dealings with one another. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said. Uh, But the Samaritans had perverted the Jewish religion. And so there was this unbridgeable barrier between these two peoples. And we know about barriers, don't we? Ethnic barriers, national barriers, gender barriers, age barriers, education barriers. But while Jesus was the Jewish Savior because salvation is of the Jews, he did not come merely to save the Jews. He came as the Savior of the world. Now, I can't imagine how anyone could have fully understand, uh, fully understood the, the extent of what the Samaritans said. Now we know that he is the Savior of the world. The Jews in that day were looking for a Jewish Messiah to save the Jewish people, to overthrow Rome and restore the Jewish kingdom. That's what they were looking for and waiting for and longing for. But Jesus came as the Savior of the world. But, of course, that's, that's all through the Gospel of John, isn't it? Uh, John 1.29, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We'll see in John 6.33, Jesus will say, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words, Jesus says, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. How would he do it? How would Jesus save the world? How would Jesus put all things right? Well, by coming to bear sin, reconciling us to the Father. That, that is the problem after all. Uh, sin has made a mess of God's good world. Structural sin flows from personal sin. Organizational sin flows from individual sin. Sin has, has poisoned the well, as it were, and everyone in the town is sick. Death and distress and disease and decay all flow from the dissolution of man's relationship to God. God is the, the fountain of living waters. Stop drinking from that fountain, and death is the inevitable result. So what is to be done? Sin must be dealt with. And so Jesus came to bear sin, to reconcile us to the Father, that we might know life and peace and wholeness and blessing in him. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's on a mission. Jesus is on a mission as the Savior of the world, and we get to be a part of that. So, so what is your role in God's purposes? The first is simply keep your eyes on the unseen. Right? Don't close your eyes to the spiritual realities that are right in front of you. Two, know the core and the scope of God's purposes, that Jesus is the Savior, and he is the Savior of the world. Third, understand the times. Understanding time matters. Uh, major events in history uh, change everything. Uh, for, for my generation, right, it was, it was 9-11, right? All of a sudden, t- things changed. Everything changed. Today, we will begin to measure time before and after COVID, right? We talk about, well, before COVID, we did it like this. Since COVID, we do it like that. For a farmer, understanding the time matters on a mundane level. Is it planting season or harvest season? Right? Those are two very different things. And Jesus quotes a proverb here, yet four months, then the harvest comes, which is to say that there is a, a minimum growth time of four months between planting and harvest, sowing and reaping. But Jesus says in verse 35, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Now, some have speculated that at that moment, the Samaritans were coming in from the town or coming out from the town through the fields wearing white scarves on their heads. So Jesus is saying, see, look, the fields are white for harvest. And, and perhaps, maybe that's true. But either way, Jesus' point is the same. In verse 36, he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now what Jesus is saying there is this. The time between sowing and reaping has collapsed. The, the sower sows and the reapers reap all at once because the harvest has come. Right? Something has changed with the coming of Jesus. And he goes on to say, one sows and another reaps. Now, sometimes in Scripture, that, that's a bad thing. As when someone sows but is displaced so that another benefits from the sower's work. But it's not a bad thing here. Sometimes it's a good thing. The, the picture is such that as the sower sows, already the reaping has begun. There is such a quick and abundant harvest that the sower and the reaper are both busy with their work simultaneously. And here Jesus is sending his disciples to reap the harvest of Samaritan souls for which they did not labor. And the point is this, the old rules of sowing and waiting and reaping don't always hold true. 
and they don't hold true anymore. We have entered into a new age. The harvest has come, Jesus is saying. Now sowing and reaping will happen continually. You know, Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is right now drawing people to himself. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right? We need sowers and reapers all participating as field hands in the kingdom. Well, do you understand the times that the harvest has come, that, that sowing and reaping happen simultaneously, that the work of the kingdom goes out and people are drawing near, that we need preachers and elders and everybody else, right, to sow or to reap or to gather in for God's kingdom to grow. And so Jesus is, is on a mission, right, as the Savior of the world, and he calls us to be a part of that to keep our eyes on the unseen, to, to know the core and the scope of God's purposes, and to understand the times, that now is the harvest. Now sowing and reaping are happening together as God's word goes forth and people draw near in faith. Fourth and finally, invite others into the same. You know, when we think about the world's problems, they can be pretty overwhelming. War in Europe, sex trafficking, Poverty, hunger. Uh, when we think about our, our individual and personal problems, things can be pretty overwhelming. Marriages break down. Parents uh, either abusive or absent. Children rebel. Financial troubles, relational troubles, legal troubles, academic troubles, health troubles, right? emotional or physical or spiritual troubles. What do we do with it all? Well, we're not going to solve all the world's problems this morning. But, of course, we've already heard that's not our job anyway. We simply enter into the victory that Jesus has won. He has reconciled us to the Father. He will make all things right on the last day. And we await our victorious King to return and put all things right. But we do have a part in the meantime. What's that part? We keep our eyes on the unseen. We, we know the core and scope of God's purposes. We understand the times, and we invite others into the same. Now, when you think about inviting other people into God's purposes, when you think about sharing the gospel, when you think about evangelism, many people object, well, I don't know what to say. Uh, we're, not, we're not smart enough to convince anybody. Uh, or I'm struggling with my own faith. How can, how can I be used to bring someone else to Jesus? But just look at the Samaritan woman for a minute. And we see in her first that, that we don't need a perfect faith just a growing faith. Uh, she just met Jesus, what, an hour earlier? She was only gradually opening up to who he was, but from the first verses of our text, uh, we see that she, she is getting it, little by little. In verse 28, she leaves her water jar and heads into town. Now, that's actually a significant detail. Uh, and don't forget, right, why did she come to the well in the first place? She came to the well to get water. She's not worried about that anymore. Uh, that, that was the, the, she leaves her water. Uh, she comes to this well to get water, but the, the beginning of her conversion is this. Jesus, remember, was asking for and then offering her water. Water, she hoped, would mean she didn't have to keep coming here. But now she's left her water jar behind. Her concern has changed. As she gradually opened up to who Jesus is, what mattered to her changed. Her, her eyes have been lifted up from earthly to heavenly realities. 
And so she goes into town and she says, see, a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? At first, she, she simply relates her own experience. See, a, a man who told me all I ever did. Now, our experience will not save anyone. Remember, that's not our job, though. But our experience is a good place to start. Here is what Christ has done for me. Here is, here is what Jesus has done. And notice, also, her faith is still unsure. Can this be, she says? There's no self-confidence in that statement, and barely faith, but there is faith, this fledgling faith. So she says, could this be him? Could this be the Christ? Could it be true? Dare to believe with me. Second, we see in this woman, not only that uh, uh, we don't need a perfect faith, just a growing faith, but we also see that it doesn't depend on our word, but Jesus' word. Ultimately, the fate and faith of others cannot and does not, and praise God, does not rest on you or even your testimony, but on God. In verse 39, we read, uh, her testimony drew the Samaritans out of the city to Jesus. Not her power, not her persuasiveness, not her learning, uh, but her simple testimony. Why? Why did it do that? Because the Spirit was at work. Uh, the, the one who blows where he will, according to uh, Jesus earlier in John. And so the Samaritans come and they ask Jesus to stay with the Samaritan people in their Samaritan town. And he does that. And he speaks to them and, and even more believe. And in the end, we come again to verse 42, where, where they say, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Right, so what was the ground of their faith? The ground of their faith, in the end, was the word of Jesus. Because of his word and what they heard from his mouth, they had come to understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Isn't it good to know right, that the faith of others does not, cannot, and must not, in the end, rest on you and your words? No one's faith should ever rest on your words. No one's faith should ever rest on my words. But faith always and only rests in the Word of God. And we must be used to spread that Word, but make no mistake, it's not our words, but God's Word, which is the ground of faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, 13 to 17. It was read earlier, but I'll read a part of it again. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are, are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? Faith comes from hearing, but hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. As we share his word, his word, and people hear his word, God uses his word by his spirit to draw people to himself, just like the Samaritans here in this passage. As Paul says earlier in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that should give us confidence in the place of timidity and confidence in the place in, instead of apathy. God's power is at work when we share his word. And so we trust not ourselves, not our, our knowledge, not our learning, not our not, not our articulateness, 
not even sure if that's a word, but are, are not the fact that we are articulate, right? But we trust in the power of God's word. Next, as we look at this woman, we see that it does not depend on our character, but Jesus' work. Her background wasn't great. She had long ago given up any pretense of morality. She had, she had had five husbands, but the man she was now with was not her husband. Now, we don't know the circumstances. Perhaps the, the first five divorced her for bad or trivial or silly or even immoral reasons. Perhaps they were the problem every time. We don't know. But her current situation was by choice. She, she had a reputation in town. Everyone knew it. And, and she doesn't even try to hide it. When she comes to town, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And they know what she did. She's pretty bold. The townspeople surely know all she ever did. That's why she is at the well alone. But after meeting Jesus, she doesn't feel the need to hide it, to shape it or to spin it or to finesse her story. Even her story, with all of its twists and turns, can be used to boost the name of Jesus. And of course, your story can too. Uh, you don't have to have it all together to point people to Jesus. In fact, his grace as the sin bearer shines more brightly through the darkness of our sin. Only in the midst of our sin and shame and sorrow can we say, look at what Jesus did for me. If I'm perfect, I don't need Jesus. It's the fact that I'm a sinner that I need him and need his grace. Finally, in this woman, we see that we don't need a well-written defense just a simple invitation. Uh, she's not learned. Uh, she's not a Bible scholar. She's not a rabbi or a teacher or a preacher or a TV evangelist. Uh, she doesn't make a bold defense of the gospel. She doesn't have a well-written apologetic. She simply says, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, we can't invite people to come and see quite like her. Uh, we no longer have Jesus' physical presence in our midst. But we do have his presence in the Spirit who speaks to us through his word. In the end of John, John will say, uh, Jesus will say in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We can't say come and see, but we can say come and hear. We can say come and see Jesus in his word. And so you can still invite people. You can invite people to come. You can invite people to come and read the Bible with you. You can invite people to come to a small group. You can invite people to come to church on Sunday. You can invite people to encounter Jesus through his word and through his people. Jesus is on a mission as the Savior of the world, and we now get to be a part of that. Keep your eyes on the unseen. Right? Mission comes before comfort. God is at work in the unseen things. Know the core and the scope of his purposes, that Jesus is the Savior, the Savior of the world. Understand the times, right, that the harvest has come, that God is even now bringing people into his kingdom. And invite others into the same. Invite them to come and see Jesus. You don't need a perfect faith, just a growing faith. It doesn't depend on your word, but Jesus' word in the gospel. It doesn't depend on your character, but Jesus' work on your behalf. And you don't need a well-written defense, just a simple invitation, come and see. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would make us bold like this Samaritan woman uh, to go out and to share Jesus with the world, to say simply, come and see. Could this be him? Could this be the Savior of the world? Help us to, to proclaim Jesus, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would draw people to yourself. 
that Jesus would be exalted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.